Um, hi everyone, I'm Helen Ashdown. Um, so thank you very much for staying on into the evening to listen to me. I'm aware that you've had a long day, so I'm very much going to be talking about the kind of the lighter side of diagnostic studies. Um, you may think, what could possibly be the link between breathalysers, babies and bumps? Um, but as you probably guessed, it's that the link between them is the study methodology and the diagnostic studies. And what I really want to talk about is my experience. It so happened that I ended up doing a few diagnostic studies, partly because I, I really enjoy them and I think they're really they're really good fun um, and so I wanted to share with you the kind of the fun side of that um, and really convince you that diagnostic studies are great and I think well hopefully Annette's pleased with me for saying that I really I really do think that it's a really simple straightforward sort of study methodology which um, is you know once you've got your head around it is really you know there's lots of studies that can be answered using diagnostic test accuracy methodology so what am I going to talk about um, there's these three studies that I've been involved in, um, breathalysers, um, immunisation history and speed bumps and appendicitis. Now, immunisation is obviously really, really important, but it's just slightly less exciting, I think, than breathalysers and speed bumps. So I'm actually probably going to only talk about that for a few minutes and mainly concentrate on what I've done with the breathalyser study and the speed bumps and appendicitis study. And what I'm going to talk about is kind of how the study was designed in relation to the designing the designing the research question and formulating that and how we designed the study to answer the question with the kind of the bumps along the way so things that things that came up which were unexpected or interesting and then to also focus on the kind of the communicating the findings aspect so particularly with um, breathalysers and speed bumps um, they've they've had quite a bit of media attention. And so I wanted to concentrate on the, the sort of how you explain diagnostic studies to the public and how, um, how to kind of sell diagnostic studies because it's not necessarily something which is easily understandable by, um, by non, you know, people that don't, don't understand the, the methods. And so you can see here, this is a, um, a, a video and you have to also, um, I'll talk about how these, how these came about. But first of all, it's come out a little bit small, so I don't know if this will be possible, but I was going to test your Oxford knowledge and ask you, first of all, which pub is that? Does anybody know? Where, sorry? No, but I think that's a good guess. Canal in the background. Um, it's the Jolly Boatman in Thwap. There we go. And whereabouts is that? No ideas? Sorry? Yay! Yay! <laughs> well done. Um, so um, yeah, so how these two pictures came, how they, they came about, and the, the sort of the stories behind them. So I'm sure this is really you will have done this today, but I just wanted to put it there in case there's anybody that hasn't been on the the course um, and wanted a bit of background. Um, so instead of thinking about the typical PICO with diagnostic studies, I always think of this as instead as a sort of PIRTO or P-I-R-T-O, um, thinking about the patients or participants, the index test, the reference test, and then what the target condition is, and then putting them together to give us a sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive value, and likelihood ratios. Hopefully that should make sense to everybody. You probably all know this already, but basically in the UK there's an immunisation schedule where babies have 
um, have immunizations and it's the same in countries around the world but kind of differs between different countries and there's set points when children have it and they, they get a letter in the post inviting them and then they get follow-up reminders and they also um, and it, it all gets recorded in this child health record that all children have but um, there are some children who don't have their immunizations up to date or are overdue with their immunizations and the reasons for that are, you know, there's many reasons for that. It may be that the parents actively decide that they don't want their child vaccinated, or it may be that they, um, or it may be that there's just reasons, you know, they've forgotten or the letters aren't getting through or they don't have the time to take their children to the doctor, you know, all, all kinds of reasons. Um, but when children go to hospital, when they, to the emergency department, when they're not planning to, you know, when they're not planning to, so obviously an unplanned admission, it's a good opportunity to ask parents about it. And that's both so that you could potentially identify if the child might have one of these diseases causing their presentation. You know, obviously the chances of measles is higher if you haven't been vaccinated against it. Um, but also as an opportunity to kind of give education about the importance of immunization and even give the immunization while the child is in hospital as well. So it's important in those respects. And what we wanted to find out was whether um, history taking, so whether the process of the doctor asking at the initial clerking of the patient, is your child up to date with their immunizations, how accurate that was for telling whether the child is, ac is actually up to date. So what do we do? Uh, this formulating the research question thing, how good is ED clerking at picking up children who are overdue with their immunizations? So we looked at children six months to six years presenting to the emergency department, looked at immunisation history. So for that, we went through the emergency department CAS cards, um, which at that stage, everything was done written, whereas now it's electronic, um, and where people had written kind of up-to-date IMS, um, or whether there was any kind of mention of it. And then combined, um, compared that with a central primary care immunisations record database, which is a central local database where this sort of information is held, and looked at uh, whether they were overdue with their immunisations or not. And what were our findings? So 76%, so about three quarters, had had an immunisation history documented, and that was lowest for the surgical and minor injury presentations, and also the older the child was. 5% um, were recorded as incomplete on the history. And then when we comp compared that to the primary care database, uh, it was slightly higher, so 7%. And we excluded some children because of the, if they were only just overdue or if they'd moved from out of area or if they didn't have an NHS number. So there were various reasons that, that those numbers have sort of decreased down. And what did we find? So we found that the sensitivity of um, this immunisation history for picking up children who were actually overdue was, was less than half, so it's only about 40% are picked up using the, the methods. But if they are picked up, it's a relatively specific um, method. So our conclusions, less than half of those overdue are picked up by history taking. The highest sensitivity was in the younger age groups, which kind of makes sense in that it's, kind of, it's closer to when parents are, when the child has actually had their immunisations. Um, but there is a limitation of this in that um, the primary care database may um, overestimate those who are overdue, for example, if stuff hasn't been updated. We did get that the, um, the local PCT, the primary care trust, trust people who run the database, actually very kindly phoned up every GP practice of the people we identified as overdue to check that it matched the GP record. So we're relatively confident that it's accurate, but at the same time, it's possible that those original GP records in themselves weren't, um, weren't necessarily up to date. Moving on, speed bumps. Um, so since 
I started doing this project, I've been collecting pictures of speed bumps. Um, and this was from our holiday in Western Canada. So this is on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Really good speed bump. My husband's absolutely sick of me going places and um, saying, um, saying, oh, there's a really good speed bump. Please, can we get down this road and take a picture of it? And this was very recently, so this is hot off the press. You're the first people to see this particular speed bump. Um, anybody, any guesses for where it is? Islands in the background? It's the west coast of Scotland, and that's the Skoe of Egg, and that's the Coolin of Rum. And this was, I think, New Year's Day or something. Anyway, good, particularly good speed bump signs. Um, so these, these slides are taken from a presentation I gave at MIT um, a few months ago, and I'll come into, onto the reasons for why. Um, but one of the things throughout is that lots of people have asked me to define what is a speed bump, which I find a bit strange having grown up with speed bumps. Um, but it is a ridge set at in intervals in a road surface to control the speed of vehicles. Um, and they are also called sleeping policemen, um, which is uh, the British equivalent, which the Americans all found very funny when we were over there. Because, well, a few of them had come across the term sleeping policemen before, uh, but not, not many of them. And the reason behind this study was, so this started when I was a surgical house officer and um, we had lots of people coming in with suspected appendicitis. Now, just to give you a little bit of background for, of appendicitis, you know, you know for the non-medics, you, you know that you know, appendicitis can be really classical and it's obvious even to you know, the person next door, your grandma, that it's appendicitis. But... Often it's not quite so clear-cut, so you use a, the doctors use a combination of, of symptoms and signs, so things like whether the pain moves, whether the patient has nausea and vomiting, to try and work out if it is appendicitis. But it's good to pick it up early, because if you miss it, then it can get more, it can get more serious, um, and um, it can, can cause a sort of severe sepsis and even death. And the definitive treatment is, um, is to remove the appendix surgically, um, but that's something which actually more recently is a little bit more questionable and certainly mild cases and now sometimes treated with antibiotics instead. So what we wanted to, the reason this kind of came about was that we'd noticed that quite a few patients in the hospital would say that the journey had been terrible. And I worked with one of the surgeons who said, oh, speed bumps, absolutely. Or, you know, if the patient says they've had pain on going over speed bumps, they absolutely must have, you know, they straight to theatre, they must have appendicitis, let's not worry about any blood tests or scans. And obviously they were joking, but they'd noticed that there was this strong association. And we thought, actually, that would be really easy to test, you know, would be quite an easy study to do. So what we did, we looked at patients who'd been referred with possible appendicitis, looked at the index test as pain over speed bumps, appendicitis on histology as our reference standard, so what it looks like under the microscope and if it's showing signs of being appendicitis, and then obviously the target condition being acute appendicitis. And we did this at Stoke Mandeville, which is famed for its um, link with spinal injuries and, and was the, f the place that the first para Paralympic Games were held. The reason that we, um, well, it was a good place to do it because Aylesbury is a hospital that's got quite a few speed bumps um, and, you know, that's a good reason to do a study, obviously. Um, and what we did was we looked at patients who'd been referred with possible appendicitis via either the emergency department or via their GP. We gave them a questionnaire when they were first admitted to hospital, so before they'd had any, you know, before they'd had any treatment. Um, and this questionnaire kind of asked about the journey to hospital and whether they'd travelled over speed bumps, and if they had, whether it had made the pain worse or better. Um, and then we got their permission to follow th them through and sort of see what happened in relation to whether they went on to have appendicitis or not. 
And those who were discharged home, we telephoned them a month later just to check that they hadn't been admitted elsewhere or that they hadn't, had a, you know, they hadn't been diagnosed subsequently with appendicitis. Um, and, yeah, so we followed them through. Happily, nobody... Happily, nobody died in our study, which was very good. Um, and we looked at the appendicitis histology to see, to see that. And that was blindly assessed by somebody who hadn't been exposed to the... who hadn't seen what the, whether the patient had had pain over speed bumps. So it was an independent assessor of the kind of interpretation of the histology results. And the pathology department of the hospital had no idea that we were doing the study. So in, in that respect, it was quite good and that they, nobody knew it was going on. It was published in the Christmas BMJ in 2012, and um, it had a particularly good cover, which is why I've put this on. It was the Sergeant Pepper-style cover, which I think is great. Um, these are the results, but I've actually, because these are the slides that I used, to, I thought it would actually be interesting to explain the results in the kind of the way that I did it to the public audience a few months ago. Um, so this is from the original paper, and I think later this week, I don't know whether later this week you're going to be looking at the Speedbones paper, but anyway, I think Richard talks about it. Um, and so 101 patients were recruited in the study. 64 who'd travelled over speed bumps were included in the analysis, so we excluded those that said they hadn't been over any speed bumps. 54 of those who travelled over speed bumps had worsened pain, and we called those speed bump positive. 34 patients in total had confirmed appendicitis, and 33 of them had pain over speed bumps, and that gives a 97% sensitivity. So only one person didn't have pain over speed bumps. And that is a better sensitivity than other symptoms and signs of appendicitis. So it's scored better than migratory pain, nausea and vomiting, um, rebound tenderness. And having such a high sensitivity uh, means that it's a really good rule out test, as you know. Um, so it's really good for saying, actually, it's really unlikely that you have appendicitis. However, lots of those who were speed bump positive didn't have appendicitis. So um, just because you have pain over speed bumps doesn't mean that you necessarily have appendicitis. And that was the worst thing about the media associated with this, that loads of newspapers said, do you get pain when you go over speed bumps? If so, go to hospital, you might have appendicitis. And I was thinking, no, I don't want to be responsible for loads of people going to the hospital um, on, account of our, on account of our study. Um, and um, yeah, as I say, there was lots of um, media attention at the time. But what I really wasn't expecting um, was to get a phone call last Easter from a guy in, um, in London, a professor, saying, oh, I, I, think, I think you might want to give me a call. I'm at home painting. This is my home phone number. And I looked him up, and he seemed like he was a proper... Um, proper professor and, and I, I kind of thought, well, what have I got to lose by giving him, a, giving him a call, even though I was away on holiday in Scotland at the time? And I phoned him up and he said, have you heard of the Ig Nobel Prizes? And I said, no, no, never heard of them. And he said, oh, you've won one. <laughs> and obviously it was slightly lost on me, the significance of this, having never heard of them. But I was staying with a group of friends who, who had kind of, well, I got off the phone and then immediately said, what, you won an email prize? That's amazing. Now, I think in non-medical subjects, they're very kind of highly regarded um, and they're seen as the sort of greatest accolade that you can get in your scientific career if you're not going to win a proper Nobel Prize. Um, so what they're sold as is the Ig Nobel Prizes honour research that, make, that first make people laugh and then make them, th then make them think. And um, Nature magazine call them, um, calls it the, um, sorry, Nature Journal, um, call, calls it uh, the highlight of this scientific calendar. Um, and it really was, you know, it's, they're awarded at Harvard and they really make a huge, huge thing um, over the 
over the so you know there was just a huge amount of media attention there's lots of pe people had traveled from all over the world i was interviewed by kind of japanese tv stations russian tv stations things and i'd never even heard of these awards before um people just really really excited that i was one of the winners of these really most coveted prizes but the ceremony is absolutely mad i've never had such a mad evening in my life it's got paper aeroplane fights and this guy stands on the stage as a kind of um, target and people throw paper aeroplanes at him and as I was sitting d directly behind him you're just in this sea of paper aeroplanes and this is a kind of public lecture thing it's, uh, there was a guy swallowing a, swallowing a sword um, and that's a but it was in a sort of scientific way. I can't quite remember the details, but anyway. And then you, you win these prizes, and they put a lot of effort into the prizes. And I brought my prize along to show you, because obviously I'm very, very proud of this. Um, this is my Ig Nobel Prize. Um, and what's, what's particularly great about this is that bringing it back from the States, I came, I, I got my bags out of the... Um, you know, off the baggage collection thing at the end, and um, saw that my bag had been opened and my padlock had been cut through. And afterwards, I thought, actually, that was kind of obvious that that was going to happen because it looks like this big sort of thing with all these wires coming out of it. And I thought, no, the people that opened it and tried to find out what it was must have been <laughs> must have been really quite you know really quite surprised. Probably had to Google what is an what is an Ig Nobel Prize. Um, but I wanted to show you um, two bits from the ceremony. Thank you. As you know, we used to have a problem at this ceremony. Many of these speakers would exceed their allotted amount of time. Here's how we now solve that problem. Please welcome the charming, the delightful, the ever so cute Miss Sweetie Pooh. is just full of, the, that's just one example of what is a completely crazy ceremony. It reminded me quite a lot of kind of Monty Python style, style things. Um, but I just wanted to end by showing you our acceptance speech, which again is something I'm very proud of. My friend from Edinburgh um, actually wrote it for us because it was very difficult to try and think, how am I going to summarise my research to a non-medical audience in just one minute? Um, so this is, our, um, this is what we did. And we were actually allowed a little bit of time afterwards to do a demonstration as well. But it was really good because then the demonstration really caught the press's attention. And I never thought when I started my medical career and started an interest in kind of diagnostic studies that it would lead me to being on stage at the University of Harvard dressed as a speed bump. <laughs> but it really was my proudest moment. Oh, this was the, this was the winner date with the Nobel laureate competition that they had beforehand. And they were real Nobel laureates that give out the prizes.
Fiala Karim of Canada and the UK, Anthony Harnden of New Zealand, the UK and the US, Nigel D'Souza. That's me if you missed me in the middle with the speed bump hat. South Africa, the US and the UK, Andrew Huang of China and the UK, Abdel Qader Aluni of Syria and the UK, and Helen Ashdown, Richard J. Stevens, and Simon Kreckler of the UK for determining that acute appendicitis can be accurately diagnosed by the amount of pain evident when the patient is driven over speed bumps. We tried to give our speech too quickly. We're also awarded $10 trillion. I'll tell you about that at the end. <laughs> Dear sir, this is our proudest day. But first of all, we'd like to say we'd never have achieved this perk without the other author's work. And so that no one else is missed, we've brought along a thank you list. <laughs> our mums and dads, let's not forget, I hope you're watching on the net. And all our cats, meow, and Auntie Jane. It's one of the professors of our department. <laughs> Diagnostic test accuracy to a wide audience. That's good. I regretted wearing high heels. <laughs> and you'll note Anthony's appendix there was made out of tights that I happened to have safety pinned to him. And then some lucky person in the audience got, um, got Anthony's appendix thrown at them. <laughs> so, yeah, it was completely, completely mad. Um, the $10 trillion um, are actually Zimbabwean dollars, which have a value of about 
20p or something. So sadly, so I have been awarded 10 trillion dollars, but that, yeah, um, sadly, it's not worth very much. I think that's all I wanted to say, pretty much. Other than, I mean, we got lots of um, media stuff around the time, and they loved all the pictures from it. And it was really, it was really nice because it gave an opportunity to talk about kind of how much. Um, fun diagnostic accuracy researches and also kind of public engagement in science and, and things um, and that's my final slide I always like to put a um, picture of my cats in presentations this is Agnes and Pippa um, but they really like diagnostic accuracy studies too um, so, so yes that's all I want to say thank you very much